Welcome to Blind Squirrel Macro the Pod. Squirrel here on the morning of Tuesday the 12th of December Melbourne time. This podcast is our usual companion to the weekly newsletter which you can find for free at blindsquirrelmacro.com. The note also contains our portfolio update and a review of our Acorn trade ideas for paid subscribers. Okay, so no more BS about editing software. I am now officially embracing my inner Christopher Nolan for good and we're sticking with these single take pods. Yep, just like Dunkirk, but without the budget. Also, as ever, a quick message from Mrs. Squirrel's legal department. Everything in this podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is categorically not investment advice. Please talk to a financial advisor before making any investment decisions. This week, we have an incongruous mix of Sid James from the Carry On movies and the Bank of Japan's Ueda-san in our bar. The topic for this week is carry trading. Now, the Carry On series is the second longest running British movie franchise after James Bond. The franchise's simple cocktail of bawdy stand up gags and sexual innuendo has certainly not stood the test of time in the same way as our much beloved 007. However, with 31 films between 1958 and 1992, the Carry On series put up a very powerful trend. Now, trending and apologies for the segue there, is something that the Japanese yen is also very good at. But anyway, this is something that has been true since the time when your squirrel actually found those carry-on films funny. The influence of Japanese savings has been a linchpin of global capital flows for decades. You will have no doubt heard people talk about the legendary yield-hungry Tokyo housewife, Mrs. Watanabe. Sick to death of paltry investment rates at home, she's been famous for shopping around abroad for her investment returns. Away from Mrs. Watanabe, the Japanese yen's role as the funding currency or carry currency of choice has also been a constant since the early 1990s. A role that has become even more important in the ever more financialized world that we've lived in since the GFC. Put simply, carry trading involves borrowing in nations and currencies where interest rates are still low and investing proceeds in those countries where yields are higher. As US interest rates were hiked off the zero bound last year in 22, those potential carry returns started to accelerate in a big way. If a 5% interest rate differential between yen and dollars looks good today, imagine what it feels like to use your yen sale proceeds to buy Brazilian or Mexican front-end rates. Cumulative returns start to look favorable versus even that juggernaut of performance that is large-cap U.S. tech equities. There's a chart in the note this week that tracks Mexican peso and Brazilian real carry returns versus the yen against the Nasdaq since early 2021. It's not even close. LATAM carry returns are 2x even against those giant beasts like Apple, Google, and Microsoft. So, so far so good. What happens when carry trades go wrong? I vividly remember the day back in 2015 when the Swiss National Bank depegged its Swiss franc, another very popular carry currency, from the euro. Carry trading is, after all, a short volatility business, and you know how I feel about those types of risk. Anyway, that January afternoon, I was sitting in Hong Kong and supposed to be underwriting a large secondary sale of Chinese financial shares in a block trade from a household name private equity fund. 
There was a sudden gasp on the trading floor as the Swissy news broke. In an instant, one of the OG macro hedge funds, Everest Capital, was out of business and several hundred thousand Polish borrowers saw their Swiss franc denominated mortgage balances climb by 40% in a case that to this day is still trundling through the European courts. Fortunately, the Swirl got the news in time to bid to miss that particular block. In the words of the Led Zeppelin's 1971 banger, when the levee breaks, mama, you got to move. I've just realized that that um, incongruous Led Zepp lyric um, is sort of out of place if you hadn't read the letter, but there is a reminder to make sure you do read the letter. Anyway, fast forward to last week. We contemplated the implications of the end of Japanese yield curve control earlier this year in our pieces entitled Waiting for the Big One and Can I Get a Squizder from JP Morgan. Back in July, a 2am Tokyo time leaked to the Nikkei news desk rattled JGB and currency traders. Last Thursday's comments from BAJ head Ueda-san fortunately took place while I was still awake this time. Candidly, the squirrel got bullish on the yen far too early in this cycle. Notwithstanding a volatile 24 hours on Thursday and Friday, Friday broader risk assets have been remarkably calm so far. Reactions in the currency were exacerbated by some extreme positioning in Japanese yen futures call options. It was the day before a major year-end expiry with significant out-of-the-money open interest in the options on the exchange. Now, leg legendary macro trader Jim Leitner famously always counsels against closing out of broken options positions simply for the sake of cleaning up your position sheets. Moments like last Thursday are the reward. My out-of-the-money yen call options that had been administered their last rights and which were well on their way to option heaven in time for Friday's expiry suddenly made a Lazarus-like recovery. I was more than happy to oblige as market makers frantically sought to cover their risk. To quote Frankie Howard in Carry On Up the Jungle, 1970, I'm flabbergasted. My ghast has never been so flabbered. Well, I guess that was funny at the time. Whether or not the next BOJ meetings, one on December the 18th and the next on January the 26th, January the 22nd rather, are now live in terms of a formal change in YCC policy is somewhat moot. Yen interest rate futures now imply a 50% chance of a rate hike. But remember from last week, these implied probabilities can be somewhat misleading as they merely represent a weighted average of potential outcomes. The market must, of course, acknowledge the increased shift away from YCC or tendency towards a shift by the BOJ. But as we've said before, we now lean towards evolution rather than revolution when it comes to this important change in Japan's monetary policy. There is, of course, the small matter of the Shunto or wage negotiations in Japan to get through first in the spring. Surely a central bank that has been fighting deflation for so long will want to get the true measure of wage inflation before making such a big call. Other inflationary factors must also be considered. For example, Japan is a major importer of energy. The recent slump in oil and natural gas prices is no doubt also being factored into the BOJ's thoughts on inflationary pressures facing their economy. Nevertheless, risk assets should be on watch. The importance of Japanese savings and the yen as a source of cheap leverage to global fixed income and equity markets 
via the multi-trillion dollar carry, carry trade complex cannot be under, understated. Japanese savers are huge players on the bond and stock registers of the West. Japanese creditors own over 10% of the government bond market down here in Australia, for example. We would not want to see that capital going home in a hurry. Market stability would certainly be at risk in the event of any sudden change to the status quo with, with its related removal of liquidity from that deleveraging. Now, futures positioning and CTA data points capture an incomplete picture of Japan's leverage role in global capital markets, which is, of course, absolutely massive. But this data is important to watch from a directional perspective. Regular listeners will know that I track the activity of the DBMF CTA replicating ETF to keep an eye on these things. Because of the way it operates, there is a lag to DBMF's tracking of CTA positions, but short Japanese yen remains the biggest outright and volatility-adjusted position in its portfolio. This ties in with the commitment of traders' data at the futures exchanges, where the short positions in yen are still at multi-year highs. However, the squirrel's biases are clear. I'm an unashamed yen bull. On a real basis, the Japanese yen is cheaper than it has ever been in my adult life when you look at it versus a trade-weighted index of other currencies. This is a cheapness that has only accelerated since the pandemic. As ever, the brilliant Russell Clark provides us with that intelligent nagging doubt on the other side of the argument. He has been writing up some fascinating thoughts on the yen recently. He notes that globalization and lower tariffs were traditionally good for the yen, given the mind-blowing productivity of the country's manufacturing base. However, he now counsels that economics and valuation is not enough for modern-day currency analysis. The return of tariff and non-tariff trade barriers globally and the rise of things like friendshoring changes the calculus. If Russell is right, the yen can still stay weak. We've also been Japanese equity bulls for some time. Our mistake has been to be way too early on our expectations for yen strength. The currency hedged ETFs, Wisdom Tree has a good one called DXJ, have been much superior plays versus the unhedged versions like iShares EWJ this year. On balance, however, I think that that hedging ship has sailed. We'll continue to build our exposure to Japanese equities on an unhedged basis. Now, we are keeping an eye on the latest political corruption scandal that's been emerging in Tokyo over the past few days. The power struggle between the militarist and pacifist wings of the LDP is tricky for us foreign outsiders to pick through. However, I do read that the scandal is likely to resolve in favour of Prime Minister Kishida's dovish camp, with a double-down focus on economic regeneration that does not blow a hole in Ueda-san's monetary plans. Net-net, I'm coming to the more firm view that a truly destabilising monetary shock-and-awe-style rug pull by the BOJ is getting more and more unlikely. With July and last week's interventions, verbal of course, the carry traders have now had two significant shots across their bow, and you would hope that risk managers around the world have yen appreciation at the top of their big risks for 2024 list, and will not get caught off guard. This gives me additional confidence to add risk in places where a massive and unruly global carry trade unwind might have potentially ugly market consequences. 
a new trade, a new Acorn report titled Samba Time shall be coming soon. We love Brazil and we think it might now be safe to get a little bit bigger in that trade. Now, a quick final thought. I realize that the carry-on references will have probably gone over the head of most of my listenership around the world. Carry-on is probably about as successful a British export as our much-beloved Marmite breakfast spread. After the past few weeks, you can only imagine what Ivy League University presidents would make of the carry-on films. However, a YouTube clip of carry-on highlights, possibly lowlights, can be found in this week's letter. I'm sharing for educational purposes only. Please don't cancel your friendly rodent. In the meantime, your squirrel will continue to watch Ueda-san like a hawk. That's all for this week on the pod. This week's portfolio update and acorn review for paid paid subscribers covers copper, uranium, bonds, gold and silver, ags again, energy, offshore and private credit. Please find out more about the squirrel at blindsquirrelmacro.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at squirrelmacro. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Squirrel out.